Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us to trust in the provision that Christ has given us, that through his death and resurrection we would live every day, feasting knowing that he is your word and your word is the bread of life. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Please be seated. So rumor has it that there's some big sporting event going on this afternoon. And this is literally the only time I will mention said sporting event. But I would honestly not be terribly aware that the Super Bowl was happening, and even that it was happening in Phoenix, if it were not for the fact of social media and the fact that it pops up on news cycles and, and on my little news feed on Facebook every, like, 38 seconds. <laughs> and it's exciting for people because we love a good spectacle, right? We love to watch something that's really entertaining and interesting and to be, to be entertained, to say nothing le- less. And it's easy to be like, oh, well, that's because we're American and that's what we like to do. But this is really a human thing. There's a, there's a funny, almost funny letter from St. Augustine to one of his younger friends as he warns him about going to do entertaining things at the Colosseum. And he thinks that this, this is far, far too distracting for a young Christian to be involved in. The Puritans, likewise, were really concerned about playing any sort of sports on Sunday. And, and they, would, they would say, no, no, you can't do this. And and there was a battle between the conformists and the nonconformists in the Church of England at that point in time. And one of the the sermons that came out was the importance of playing sports on Sunday in order to fight back against the Puritan influence in the Church of England back a few hundred years ago. And and these these questions that St. Augustine or that the Puritans raise are important, although we can kind of overemphasize them such as the Puritans did, but they force the question of what is your focus on? Are you focused on finding the next most entertaining thing? Or are you focused on something more important? Now, as, as we've been inundated with news of the Super Bowl happening, something else interesting is happening in Kentucky. On Wednesday morning at a chapel service at a college there in Kentucky, there was a sermon preached on Romans 12. And a preach, the sermon was about repentance and life in Christ, and I I don't know the entire story of the sermon, but something about what happened at that chapel service inspired the students to continue to worship God, to continue to worship the Lord, and many people started to come forward and repent of their sins, and and this is, of course, a different tradition than ours, where there was, in fact, an altar call and, and all of that, which we don't do, not saying it's good or bad, but But this kept going, and at least until last night, people had continued to worship from from about 10 a.m. on on Wednesday morning until today. But if you're not on social media, if you're not following sort of odd Christian subculture news, you've probably heard nothing about this. As amazing as what's happening there, as, as God renews these young people's minds to live more faithfully in him. Part of the reason you didn't hear about this is because it... It isn't entertaining. There isn't a lot of bloodshed involved. It's just kind of a thing that is happening. And so therefore, major news sources just don't care about it. And the other part of it is 
is it's just overshadowed by everything else that's going on in the world. And so it's easy to miss. But it forces the same question. What are you focusing on? Now, don't hear me saying, don't go watch the Super Bowl this afternoon. If you like the Super Bowl, by all means, watch it. I, I don't know that we'll be watching it in our house. We'll probably be napping because everybody's been sick off and on through this whole week. And it's been delightful. But... <clears throat> But whether right here and now, or this afternoon, or throughout the rest of the week until we gather again next week, the same question should be on the forefront of our minds. What are you focusing on right now? Are you trying to remember that great wing recipe while I preach and you're like, oh goodness, I hope he doesn't take too long. I I probably will take too long, sorry. Or are you basking in the word of God? Are you thinking about what the word of God is ministering to you right now? This afternoon, what are you going to focus on? Are you going to get upset if your team doesn't get its touchdown? Or are you going to enjoy the fellowship with your family and friends and let the light of Christ shine forth from you as you enjoy a time of fun and fellowship with them? And what about throughout this week? What will be your focus? Will it be just to get through the day? Or will you ask that the Lord sustain you to get you through the week to his glory? Revival, and that is true revival, comes when our focus is on Christ, when we realize that we need to be repentant for our sins, that we need to be trusting in him. And this happens day in and day out in the lives of many. So this morning, we open up into the the fourth miracle of Jesus in the gospel according to St. John. And probably a better translation than what we have is sometime later. In other words, it doesn't actually really matter how much time has passed, but time has passed since he was in Jerusalem, and we had that healing that we talked about last week. And then he goes on to teach about how, in fact, he is equal with God the Father. Some time has passed, and we hear that he goes to the other side of the lake, or the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee. And he goes to approximately where Golan Heights is, if you have familiarity with Israeli and Middle Eastern um, geography. If you don't, it's kind of the far side of the lake, the not-Israel side at this point. So that's where our miracle is taking place. And that's kind of impressive, because perhaps some of these people are are locals, but it seems like a lot of people from Israel or, or Galilee followed him over there, because they had seen something. You see, these people were looking for a spectacle, like we so often look for a spectacle. We're told that they saw signs, and they were hoping to see more signs. They were hoping to see something that would awe them and go, wow, that's amazing, like you might go and see a magician or something like that. But one of the interesting things about this is is it is a plural. They, They had seen signs, not just a sign like what we saw last week, but they had seen more signs than apparently John recorded. And that drives home a really important point about John's, the signs that John records. He makes no attempt to say, I'm going to record every single sign and thing that Jesus did. But he picks just seven because he wants to draw out what those signs tell us about who Jesus is. Last week, somebody asked me, well, why did Jesus only heal that one man? 
And I hope at least some of you kind of wrestled with that question through this week because that's a really good question. Why did he just heal that one man? And the fact is he didn't just heal that one man. John just reported that that was that healing because he wanted to drive home, again, who Jesus is. Or in this case, he wanted to give proof that Jesus is equal with God the Father. That when he makes that claim, he's not just making that claim out of thin air, but he had every right to heal on the Sabbath, and that he had every right to heal that man, because he and the Father are equal. Now this week we come to another sign, and the sign is a, is a, is a revelation of transcendental power that shows who someone is, and that's why John is using these signs. Now, perhaps they are, in fact, looking, and it seems like maybe they're looking for something more than just to kind of be titillated. I love that word, by the way. To be entertained or titillated or, or find some sort of enjoyment. They're actually wanting to know who Jesus is, but, but as we read on, we're going to quickly realize that they want something more than just, they want something other than what Jesus is coming to usher in. And we'll see that in just a minute as we, as we move on through this passage. What they're looking for, though, is something worldly. And so that, again, begs this question of what are you looking for this morning? Are you looking for worldly entertainment? Or are you looking to grow in Christ? Are you looking to trust in him every more each, ever more each day? Now, what makes this, gospel, this, this miracle all the more interesting is that it's the only, gospel, the only miracle that is brought up in all four gospel accounts. All the other miracles are maybe brought up in one, but in, in this case, this one is brought up in all four. All four have a feeding of 5,000 men, and, and men will become important in just a minute. <clears throat> um, and normally, it's good to just read the gospel account on its own. But here, this can actually help inform us as we read it. And, and if we read the other ones, we realize that the people have come out because they want to see, want to actually hear Jesus teach. They've heard that he's a good teacher, and they want to hear what he has to say. And so they're there for more than just a miracle, but, but still we, we wonder what their motivation is. And the next thing that's interesting in John's little introduction to this gospel, and I know we've spent a lot of time on it, but if we understand the introduction, the rest of the gospel, the rest of the account makes a lot more sense. He ties it to the Passover, and it's this weird little paraphratic statement. Right? He says, and the Passover was near. And, and if you're reading it, you might be like, well, why in the world did John think like we needed to know that the Passover was near? And it might be tempting to say, well, he wants us to have a timeline. And that's not a bad thought. But it's more than that. John is actually making a theological statement here. Because he brings up the Passover three times in his gospel account. The first time, Jesus equates himself to the temple. So he's showing how the Passover relates to the temple and how Jesus relates to the temple and why that's important. And then the third time, of course, is at the time of Jesus' death, where Jesus becomes the Passover lamb for you and I. The fuller Passover lamb that, that passes us over from death. And now this mention, he ties it also to the Passover and why would he tie this over to the Passover? If we were listening to this or reading this early on, we would realize probably what he's doing is he's tying it to God's deliverance in Exodus. And if we think of bread in Exodus, 
then we realize here there's also bread. Bread in Exodus, God provides bread in, for Israel in the form of manna or bread from heaven. And so in mis- unmistakably tying it to this, Jesus, God, or John is saying Jesus is that bread from heaven. Jesus is that bread from heaven that sustains us in what we have ahead of us. The miracle is more than simply providing some amount of tasty bread for people, for the crowds. It points towards bread that is that journey, for bread to give us sustenance for the journey ahead of us. So then Jesus asks Philip, well, where can we buy bread that the, these, this crowd might eat? And we learn that this is a test. John reminds us that the miracle is meant to be something deeper, to show us something about who Jesus is. And if we think about testing in Scripture, we realize that there's never a time that God tests people that aren't his people. And so God is showing something to his people, specifically to Philip and to his disciples, about who Jesus is. This testing will reveal who he is, like the manna in the wilderness revealed something about who God was to Israel. Right? If we think back to the manna in Israel, the question is, like, how are we going to eat? Did you just take us out into the wilderness to die? And God says through Moses, no, I will provide food for you. And so he shows the people of Israel that they can trust him in the wilderness. Likewise, Jesus is about to show Philip and his disciples that he can provide and he can sustain those people that are there. Now, Philip responds as you and I would respond. He looks in his wallet and he goes, well, I have this amount of money, but that's not actually going to cover nearly enough. The reality is 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to feed anybody, but it's still a lot of money. 200 denarii would be about 200 days wages or roughly eight, eight months of wages. So, so think about that. Whether you live paycheck to paycheck or, or you're doing all right and you, you have extra coming in, if you added up all the money that you brought in every month for eight months, whether you're that person living paycheck to paycheck and, and don't have a ton or, or you have plenty, it's going to be a lot of money when you add it up all together. But then if you look at how much it would be to feed even 5,000 people, it wouldn't be enough. So then Andrew, Peter's brother, chimes in about a boy who has five barley loaves and two fishes. It's, it's two fish. I don't think fishes is plural, by the way, but I have this bad habit of saying fishes. Um, so he has, he has five barley loaves and two fishes. And As we read about this boy, John is very subtly alluding to another feeding, one that almost definitely we wouldn't think about. I wouldn't have thought about it if I hadn't read about it as I was was preparing for this week. We read about, it's this feeding where Elisha feeds 100 men with 20 barley loaves. The fact that a barley loaf is brought up again, and the fact that the boy, you the word used for boy is used here and both in that story, is this really subtle allusion back to this other story. And so later on when we read, oh, truly a prophet has come among us, that's not a mistake. But it is in fact what 
John is partially trying to drive at here is the fact that Jesus is the better prophet than Elisha, who was the, who was the prophet that followed Elijah, who's the well-known prophet that we often hear about. Jesus is that better prophet to come. Because, because 20 loaves for 100 people, we think, well, you know, that might not be a whole lot, but that might be enough to help them keep going till tomorrow. And, and if we read that story, we, re- we read that when those, 100 lo- or those 20 loaves are given to the 100, there's plenty for them. It's not just like we read in this story. But we see something really interesting. A modest amount of loaves are given to feed a reasonable amount, a number of people. And then here, a measly, just a tiny amount of food is given, and there is plenty. And so it drives home that fact that Jesus is that better prophet. The lacking of provision doesn't seem to bother Jesus, and he tells them, have them all sit down. And then John says, the men recline. And so here's that that reference to the men. And, and if we make that gender neutral, we actually lose part of what John is driving at here. It really has to be that the men were 5,000 in number. Because John is intentionally trying to note this because he wants, to know, uh, wants us to know something about this group. If Jesus was a revolutionary who wanted to take over Israel, he now had the forces to do so. 5,000 men, even if he only lasted a few weeks and Rome you know, kept sending more and more centurions and, and their crowds, it would have been enough to really, to really mess up things for the Romans. It would have been enough to really drive in a force. But Jesus wasn't that revolutionary. And John wants to draw that out, that Jesus wasn't called to be an earthly king. And so Jesus gives thanks. And he probably used a traditional Jewish blessing, something like this. Blessed be thou, Lord our God, king of the world, who, has ca- who causes bread to come forth from the earth. He simply gives thanks to the Lord and trusts and knows that there will be a sufficient amount of bread because bread comes from God. Our food, our sustenance comes from God. When I was in high school, I went on a missions trip to Nicaragua with, with the school that I went to. I went to a little Christian school. And we had a day camp, and a bunch of really poor kids came. And we, at the end of the day, we gave them a meal. And, and the Spanish teacher was cooking, and she started panicking because she's like, there's no way we have enough food for all of these kids. But somehow, probably partially just because of her, her abilities and, and Certainly because of God's provision, we did in fact have enough food. And I've seen this story play out in, in tons of different ways. There's been times where I've run out of money and by the grace of God I had just enough to make it, was like given a $20 bill and that got me through till my next paycheck or other little things like this. And these little stories of miraculous feedings, whether it be from our personal lives or from the scripture, kind of seem really unlikely. And to modernists, this story in particular seems so unlikely that it's driven some to people to say, well, no, this is a parable about, about uh, generosity. It's, it's to encourage us to be generous. 
But this so fundamentally misses the point of what John is trying to drive home. It so fundamentally misses what John wants us to see. First and foremost, it shows us that the Lord's provision is in abundance, especially in the New Covenant. But it also points us to a greater reality. That in the New Covenant, in your renewed heart, Christ alone is your satisfaction. And he is more than enough to satisfy you. And so as we wrap up, we see that the people kind of get it right. right? They recognize that he is a great prophet. But then Jesus is like, no, I know you want to make me king. But it's the wrong kind of king. And so he slips away. <clears throat> and it's because we, we now learn what, in fact, they're looking for. They're looking for signs to see if he's a prophet. And they're looking for signs to see if he is that king that will free them from the Romans. But what Jesus frees them from and frees you from is from our worldly urges that we would be focused rather on the kingdom. Jesus' provision here is not meant to prove, point us towards that earthly kingdom, but towards the coming of the heavenly kingdom. It's to point us towards the fact that he is the bread of life that makes it, opens the door for us to walk and persevere through whatever troubles we face in this life. As we think about this, we realize that the feeding of the 5,000 recounts and foreshadows several miraculous feedings. If you think back all the way to Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are provided with plenty in the Garden of Eden. God has provided them with more than enough. And then we fast forward to, to the manna in the, in the wilderness that's provided for Israel. And then we fast forward again to that story in 2 Kings, where Elisha has just has enough food to, to feed the hundred. And then we fast forward yet again to the miraculous feedings in, in the gospel accounts. And then we fast forward to here, today, when we will, when we will read the word when, as we have already, and when we break the bread and come to the cup for the spiritual nourishment of the people which foreshadows an even greater feeding at the marriage feast of the Lamb, where the church is married to Christ. And finally, to perfection in heaven, new heaven and new earth, when there will be nothing that we will want. The point of the feeding was not to make revolutionary strong. It was not to awe us. It was not to entertain those that were there. The point of the feeding was to prepare people to know that Christ and Christ alone is the bread of life. Come down from heaven. That Christ is the bread of faithful people for our exodus from worldliness into the renewal, into the kingdom of heaven. Friends, what did you come here today for? To see your friends? To check off your Sunday church attendance? For your heart's to be renewed in Christ. May your hearts be renewed because Christ is the bread of life, broken for you, provided for you in abundance for the journey that lies ahead, provided for your reproof, for your rebuking, for your rebuilding, for your renewing, that you may again and again return your focus unto the kingdom of heaven. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.